dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. That's some good radio. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. AM640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here. Your weekly look at the world melting down in some unlikely corners and uh, melting down because of incendiary kites tonight uh, as well. And uh, the the you know what I take it back I will roll it back my predictions of uh, chaos on the streets of uh, Silmar, Pacoima, and possibly even Koreatown apparently misplaced and so I I'll uh, leave it to the news guy to Michael Chappé uh, last Sunday's disarray which including footage of a guy shooting a Roman candle an LAPD riot squad guy I I checked the LAPD headquarters Twitter feed all afternoon. After Mexico beat Korea, I didn't see anything. Oh, they had a couple of things going on. Oh, you mean... Uh, no, it was there chaos? The, the South Koreans not happy? Or, or the or f- uh, fans of L3. No, but, everything seemed to... I think there was a couple of arrests in, uh, I want to say, uh, Highland Park, but uh, I could be wrong. It might have been uh, East L.A. Looks like everybody behaved. But a lot better than last time. Yeah, yeah. and including... Uh, there was a huge contingent at uh, at Plaza de Mexico in downtown L.A. There was also a live watching party in Koreatown, and there was a, there was a big contingent of Mexican fans at the Koreatown viewing, and it, it looked like everyone was kind of in good spirits. That's awesome. Yeah. So I guess you know, obviously, part of the reason is because you know it was eight a.m. Hopefully, and uh, so anyway, very cloudy too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was it was okay. Now, of course. Um, event number two of the purge, Los Angeles, 2018, happens at 11 o'clock. If you don't know this, uh, and I'm not saying any of you are going to suffer from this, but I'm just saying that the California Department of Social Services is shutting down EBT cards at 11 p.m. So there will, for 24 hours of system maintenance, people will not be able to use their EBT cards. Now, I only mention this because we've rioted for less. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the Lakers winning a championship, Lakers losing a championship. So I'm, I'm just saying it, in case, uh, in case you're wondering what the explosions and sounds of gunfire are, it might be that after uh, 11 o'clock. So, uh, there is that, well, there were, uh, the prognosticators were saying that by right now, Israel would be bombing the living crap out of Gaza for the latest asymmetric warfare tactic by Hamas. Uh, you recall about a month ago we were dealing with uh, Hamas's Hamas, Hamas's march to return. You know, and again, in, in terms of sovereignty in the United Nations, the Gaza Strip is effectively an independent country. Its primary funding source or non-governmental organizations from Europe, um, huge subsidies by French and German uh, governmental funds as well as private funds, and it's their way basically of funding anti-Semitism uh, without having to be openly anti-Semitic. And so what, what uh, Gaza residents, Gazans were doing about a month ago is, is they were walking unarmed to the Israeli frontier and basically tempting Israeli soldiers to shoot at them and with live rounds or rubber bullets or whatever. And as they presented, presented uh, threats to Israeli soldiers, the Israelis fired back. There was a lot of misinformation. 
supposedly a four-month-old toddler uh, or infant died because of tear gas inhalation turned out to be a complete hoax, thorough hoax, uh, and that the majority of dead are actual Hamas military wing guys. Okay, so they've had a month to rethink that. And part of the problem here for Hamas, and I told you this when this happened a month ago, I I told Bill Handel on uh, Tactical Tuesday, I told you this here, Hamas pays a death benefit. When you die in an official Hamas function, they pay your family a really big death benefit, okay? So when they did that march to return thing, and over 100 people were killed by Israeli forces, Hamas didn't have the money because they also pay for wounds, slight wounds and grievous wounds. Hamas, as it turns out, didn't have the money on hand to pay for all of the death benefits. And so that movement went away pretty quickly. It went away in about three or four days because they were no one wanted to come back on day two because they hadn't paid off people from day one. Hamas ran out of money. So here's what they've come up with for the past week and a half. Incendiary kites. Uh, the, the entire point here, the strategy is asymmetric warfare to make Israel overreact and strike back with overwhelming force. Because, of course... Hamas loves this narrative where the poor downtrodden Gazans who just want peace and they want their homelands back or whatever will uh, go to a checkpoint with slingshots and they'll begin flinging stones at Israeli soldiers and hopefully it literally is their wish that somebody gets killed. Somebody on the Hamas side, someone on the the Gazan side is, is killed. Um, but does not on the scale that they were dealing with a month ago. So what they've come up with now are incendiary kites and balloons. And there are all sorts of videos in YouTube on how to do this. It's a combination of uh, chemical and, uh, and, and uh, flammable liquid in a hard aluminum container, usually from a soft drink can, some kind of thick gauge aluminum uh, container, and uh, they they will begin igniting it, and it's hanging underneath a kite. And effectively, it operates as the tail of a kite. You know why kites have tails, right? It provides drag, and it keeps the kite oriented correctly so that as, as you're keeping it stiff in the wind like a sailboat sail, it remains oriented correctly so that you can you can guide the thing, right? So on normally on a kite that you and I use, you have a long cloth tail, 10 feet long or something like that. Uh, what they're doing are they're constructing hexagonal kites. Sometimes they, ironically, are actually in the shape of a Star of David. Other times it really is a hexagon. And for ballast to keep the kite oriented correctly, it'll be hanging one of these incendiary, incendiary bombs. So keep, keep in mind that Gaza is on the Mediterranean coast, and the wind, apparently, the uh, overwhelmingly, the wind blows inland, kind of like here. Uh, hence the waves, right? <clears throat> and so... They are sitting there extending the string out a thousand meters and then cutting the string. And then the kite lands somewhere. Well, so far in the past two weeks, over 10,000 acres of either farmland or forest have been burnt. A large building was burnt. Um, Smaller apartments uh, have been burnt. And the Israelis are in a quandary because it's just what? Boys flying kites but they're flying incendiary kites. And it is really more of a, a, a bee sting. And what the uh, Gazans, what Hamas are, are uh, trying to provoke the Israelis into doing is to begin killing boys flying kites. Because then, of course, what? They're just flying kites. It's the ultimate asymmetric warfare. 
and then they only have to pay a few death benefits. So that's what's going on right now. And I mean, I again, I would love to hear from someone how uh, how Hamas and how how the Palestinians want peace. How they it, clearly, if you haven't figured out how Hamas works, how the Palestinian Authority works by now, the only thing they make are corpses, right? That's their only export is photographs of dead innocent people or what they claim to be innocent people, generally killed. Uh, their greatest hope is that they're killed by an Israeli F-16 or Apache helicopter or something like this. So that that's the position Israel's in tonight. That they're they're not firing rockets because the Israelis are intercepting the rockets. So they they they, they can't get an Israeli overreaction from that. <clears throat> they can't pay people to confront Israeli soldiers at the border anymore because they don't have the money. So they have resorted to the incendiary kite, and that's what's going on. Uh, right now, and I, and I notice there's a, a, a thorough lack of coverage on the part of American media because the Israelis aren't flying kites back into Gaza. The Israelis are the pure victim here. Incendiary bombs are landing on their farms and burning corn and wheat and the whole thing. Uh, when we come back, uh, the latest out of Syria and Yemen. So a real ugly situation happening there. I'll tell you what's uh, going on there right after this. It is Eric Secret Place. Brian sits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. A snap election just opened up in Turkey just a few minutes ago. It's a presidential parliamentary election and uh, the uh, the order for F35s uh, by Turkey will uh, get into that also a tale of two seed trials Britain new aircraft carrier doing it successfully China new aircraft carrier doing it a different way that's all coming up and the conquest of Santiago on this date in 1847 uh so what's going to be happening uh, evidently there at uh, Camp Pendleton <clears throat> is uh, a repeat of what happened in 2014 here in Southern California, and that is that uh, Customs and Border Patrol and uh, and ICE are going to be punting the uh, temporary housing of people detained at the border, and primarily unaccompanied minors, again, but doing it on military bases. The, the Navy revealed a few days ago that they had undergone a study uh, to look at uh, facilities, they, the Navy has what are called outlying fields, usually at a, at a large uh, naval air base like Miramar uh, or Limor up in, uh, in the valley, San Joaquin Valley. Uh, they have uh, what are called outlying or outerlying fields that are used for touch and goes and things like that. Well, those are military facilities. The Navy's looked into the use of uh, one of those in Florida and one in Alabama. Uh, to house what they're calling austere camps, meaning they would put up temporary tents and put in outhouses and ablution units, you know, uh, sanitary units and things like that for temporary housing of what is going to be uh, overwhelmingly unaccompanied minors, like in 2014. <clears throat> but the difference is, uh, this time, they're not, uh, evidently, they're not going to be uh, directly adjacent to civilian areas. If you weren't paying attention in 2014, and, and by the way, this is not the military violating posse comitatus. There, there is a ban since the Civil War that the federal military cannot enforce civilian law. That's not what this is. This is the use of military facilities. 
2014, when thousands of unaccompanied minors were grabbed at the border, they had to go somewhere. No one had thought of it. The Obama administration had not thought of that. Uh, and so they turned to FEMA to administer the housing of the kids and their the ultimate uh, resolution of where they would go. Because we had decided that we weren't going to uh, deport them back to where they came from. They came from Central America, just like now. So in 2014, for instance, at the Port Wyneme Naval Base in Oxnard, the, the Navy had to give over a, a big part of the compound to FEMA. And very quickly, the warehouse and the bunk beds and everything were overwhelmed with unaccompanied minors from 12 years old up to 17 years old. Though uh, many of them were over 17, uh, they just were acting like they were uh, 17. So FEMA then, in conjunction with the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the ORR, which is a federal agency, um, the initial plan was that family members would come and get these thousands of kids. They didn't have family members. Their parents sent them up here with no family, no contact. In many cases, uh, no no known language. Many of them were speaking uh, indigenous languages that were not known here in the U.S., not Spanish. They were coming from deep in the woods of Honduras and Guatemala uh, and Belize, and they they didn't speak uh, Spanish. So... The Office of Refugee Return, we're not getting any success in uh, resettling kids with relatives. Uh, uh, so they brought the criteria down to foster homes. The foster homes quickly filled up. So they began loosening the criteria to basically the kids could designate and they could sign a form and they could be released to whoever was there to pick them up. So child traffickers um, hit upon this and they uh, began... Uh, using some of the older boys in the facility to recruit girls, telling the girls, sign this form and you'll go to Bakersfield as a maid. So the girls signed out with these traffickers. Hundreds of girls were handed over by FEMA to human traffickers right here in California. Talk to LAPD and talk to LA Sheriff's Department. When you see these raids on T-shirt sweatshops in downtown LA or hooker raids, uh, at, at hotels in the valley, half of the people don't speak English and they signed out of one of these refugee camps because they thought they were going to be a maid or whatever. That's the problem that we had in 2014. We're still cleaning it up. So now we're talking about Camp Pendleton, 47,000, whatever that number was. Of uh, And again, th these are unaccompanied. Okay, the families that are coming in and supposedly their kids are being separated from them, they're adjudicated pretty quickly. They get their court date. Uh, they, they get charged with their misdemeanor. They get their court date, and they get uh, released. They may or may not show up for the court date. Um, these detention facilities are not going to be pending trial. Uh, they're going to be overwhelmingly for unaccompanied kids. So if you want to really get angry about something, that should be it. Uh, when we come back, the situation in Yemen is getting really nasty. So is the situation in Syria. That and more coming up. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Sutton here until midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight. And uh, we'll have more tomorrow during Super Hyper Local Sunday about the uh, displaced persons, the refugee camp, if you want to call it, uh, at Camp Pendleton. Uh, and also, uh, like I say, snap elections for president and parliament in Turkey. Uh, so will this really be democracy? And uh, if Turkey's on the outs, 
why did we just allow them to take delivery of their first two F-35s? We'll get into that uh, here in the uh, next break. So the uh, offensive in Yemen with American assistance to completely cut off the the Houthi rebellion, this has been going on since 2015, and it finally struck the Saudis that if they border Yemen to the north, they can prevent any supplies from going in that way. And if they are occupying uh, Yemen's major port, Aden, then that leaves only one other port where their Iranian supporters can drop off supplies, and that's the port city of Hudaydah. As it turns out, the Houthis thought of this too. And so the, uh, the Saudi Navy and Air Force, as well as uh, the, uh, the Army of the United Arab Emirates, uh, are attempting to surround the port city of Hudaydah as well as assault it from the sea. None of this has worked so far. Um, their amphibious assault was a bit of a disaster about a week ago. The Saudis are not revealing how many soldiers they lost. Suffice it to say, uh, it was uh, not an exercise in expertise in amphibious assaults into a uh, non-permissive environment, shall we say. Whereas the U.S. Marine Corps and the uh, the British Royal Marines, that is their fort, uh, is uh, forced entry uh, onto your beaches or your ports. So, so um, it's devolved into a pretty ugly episode in a very ugly war. Uh, the U.S. is providing intelligence and surveillance support. Uh, rumors that French special forces are on the ground there have been substantiated by photo, uh, though they're not evidently in direct combat because if they were, they'd be winning. But uh, so so uh, the, the Saudis continue to throw forces in there. And again, for the uh, Emirates, it's not like their citizens are doing the fighting. They will go to the lowest bidder uh, and they will get Ugandans and they'll get Pakistanis and, and others, but in, in they're not particularly committed beyond the paycheck to winning. And so far it's sort of showing, whereas the Houthi movement, which is not a religious sect, though they are overwhelmingly uh, a particular uh, piece of, uh, of Shia Islam, but it's not, it, it's actually named after its founder. And they're rather clearly committed to keeping this, uh, this city. Meanwhile, in Syria, the Assad regime is putting together what is clearly a pretty competent offensive uh, in their south, in the so-called deconfliction zone, uh, that the minute it was called the deconfliction zone, al-Qaeda and ISIS occupied it. And so the Israelis, who pretty clearly have come to a deal through Putin, where they have told Damascus, you clear those guys off our border or we will mow the lawn for you. And that's what has led to several strikes, uh, the Israeli Air Force hitting Syrian army positions. Uh, the Syrians don't want any piece of that, so they're about to uh, re-exert their own influence on their own border with Israel because the Israelis know that Assad is the devil you know. And Assad doesn't right now. He, he has bigger fish to fry than, than lobbing rockets at uh, Israel. This, by the way, uh, the Israelis have said that should also probably go for Hezbollah as well because anything Hezbollah does, they do it in your name and we're going to blame you. So anyway, that's going on. The problem, the men in the middle are some of the rebels that we have been supporting, the Syrian Defense Forces, the SDF. These are the Arabs, Sunni Arabs, who rallied to us, American Special Operations, to join the SDF to fight ISIS. Well, ISIS is in their final death throes. Uh, they're fighting the Assad regime now, 
And we've effectively told these guys, if you want to fight Assad, we're not helping you. Um, we have an agreement. You stay on this side of the Euphrates with the Kurds. That's all good. And so you're probably going to start seeing this. America has abandoned our allies thing. But we've told them, if you want to pick a fight with Assad, that's not why we're here. And this is where this is about to get really complex uh, here in, in the final stages of this conflict where we come into this part where we're wondering, well, if ISIS is defeated, why are we still there? All right, when we come back, a tale of two sea trials, a, a British carrier versus a Chinese carrier. And uh, what is the business defense relationship with Turkey? Because uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey, has done something really, really wacky and not very NATO-like. That and more coming up. And the conquest of San Diego on this date, uh, next hour. That and more. Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits in here until midnight, KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. Stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight, and we are we are minutes away from the California Department of Social Services twenty four hour maintenance uh, down for the EBT cards. EBT cards across the state will cease working here in about uh, six minutes. So stand by, stand by. If you need to purchase Burger King on Lancashire. Anywhere it says EBT here or EBT accepted, you better get in line now. Um, so, uh, anywho, some uh, some defense uh, developments. Couple. Uh, I know that Turkey is sort of on the outs with us right now with the whole NATO thing. Turkey's in the middle of a parliamentary election right now, today, Sunday, in Turkey, um, and there is talk that a very real opposition to Erdogan might be in the offing. But uh, the uh, the F-35 has been extremely successful in its overseas sales. Turkey is on the, uh, the page for 100. They want 100 F-35s. They just ter- took delivery of their first two on Wednesday at Fort Worth at the Lockheed Martin facility there. <clears throat> so uh, Turkey's all in there. Uh, it was after the fake coup that uh, President Obama wanted to put a delay on them accepting the F-35s. Congress overruled him, so Turkey will be getting their F-35s. Weird thing, though, that they uh, – this is a development since the coup. The Turks are, have committed to purchasing Russia's most advanced air defense system, the S-400 Triumph system. Will they get the very real, fully mission-capable version that the Russians are operating? Uh, and operating in Syria right now? I don't know. If I know the Russians, it will not be the full version. Uh, it was the the Hellenic Air Force, the Greek Air Force in the uh, mid-90s that bought the predecessor system. When Russia was really hard up for cash, they sold a NATO nation. They sold Greece, the uh, their state-of-the-art air defense system at the time. Now they're selling another NATO nation, the S-400, uh, but will it be the fully mission-capable system? It doesn't seem likely because the Russians aren't complete effing morons. Uh, however, the F-35 that we're selling Turkey um, will, in fact, be the fully mission-capable complete version of the F-35. So uh, dig, if you will, that picture. Um, two other defense notes. Uh, it's uh, We're in an interesting time right now because the Royal Navy is sea-testing their first new carrier in about 40 years. The HMS Queen Elizabeth is undergoing sea trials. Uh, meanwhile, the Chinese Navy, the People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLA Navy, 
are uh, in the middle of sea trials of their second aircraft carrier, but their first home-built carrier. The Type 001 doesn't have a name yet, except they call it the Type 001. Um, it, it is supposedly a carbon copy of the Chinese carrier, which they bought from the Ukrainians 20 years ago and made it seaworthy again. That supposedly they reverse engineered it, uh, put a new Chinese designed power plant, you know, engine in, in the back of it. But otherwise, uh, if you uh, know anything <clears throat> about the, uh, if you've ever been on, been on the Russian carrier, the, the Kuznetsov, which really does nothing but produce black smoke, uh, or if you were ever on uh, the Chinese carrier when it was in uh, the Russian Navy uh, as the Brezhnev, then supposedly you will know this new home-built indigenous Chinese carrier. It's almost indistinguishable from the other Chinese carrier that they bought from Ukraine. From the outside, it's indistinguishable. Well, it took its, uh, it began its sea trials about a month ago, and so did the HMS Queen Elizabeth. So the uh, British, who, of course, have, uh, you know, centuries of sea trial experience and over 100 years of aircraft carrier experience, uh, they took the, uh, the QE, as they call it, out to sea for uh, just power plant and maneuverability. The first step in any sea trials is how does this thing operate as a ship? So the British take it out, um, spin it around, full speed, the whole thing, and about a week and a half later, it comes back in. Then it goes back out for helicopter trials. How, you know, how is this aircraft carrier going to work with helicopters? The next step is going to be with its complement of F-35 aircraft, or at least a few. Uh, in, in fact, American-owned F-35s are, are going to help the Queen Elizabeth determine its sea trials for aircraft. But they're, uh, they're doing helicopters now. And these trials each take about a week and a half. Of course, they've had years to come up with the criteria and what they need to do and the whole thing. Well, the Chinese carrier, the Type 001, it went out and it limped back into port in about a week. So there was something severely wrong with their home-built carrier. They took it out into the Yellow Sea, uh, the, the area between mainland China and, uh, and the Korean Peninsula, uh, to the west of the Korean Peninsula. It was built in Dalian, a heavily, heavy modern industrial city uh, in, <clears throat> in China on a peninsula uh, to, the, uh, to the west of North Korea. And not only did the ship come back in before a traditional sea trial would have been done, but it went right back into the dry dock. Uh, oh, by the way, the uh, director of the dry dock has been fired and charged with corruption. Um, and so someone is not happy in the Chinese Navy. This was supposed to be uh, their crowning achievement, uh, their, their first homemade carrier uh, in, in less than a week. It's it's not only back, but it's on dry land in dry dock. And the guy who the naval engineer, the director of the shipyard, who was in charge of building it, is uh, behind bars. So that doesn't bode well. And the Chinese are not real happy about that because for them, this is a tremendous setback. I mean, this literally is like a five-year setback for their naval architecture program. Their next carrier, at least the blueprints that they've released to the public, are of a traditional American-style aircraft carrier with catapults. Um, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, as well as the Chinese carriers, are the uh, the British style ski jump, where a, a vertical takeoff aircraft uh, with a lighter load of fuel and bombs uh, gets ahead of steam up, <clears throat> and it uh, and it goes off a ski jump. Uh, that's not nearly as capable as the American system 
of uh, a, a catapult. Uh, you can put a really heavy plane on a catapult and shoot it off into uh, the uh, the atmosphere. So anyway, the Chinese are not happy. The British are, on the other hand, uh, very happy. All right. Well, uh, you've had time with those EBT cards. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, hour number two, the conquest of San Diego uh, and North Korea returning bodies to us. That and more coming up. Hour number two, Dark Secret Place, right after this. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Hour number two. Brian suits in here until uh, midnight, uh, and uh, I will be here throughout California's great EBT card crisis. Some have said that this is the beginning of the very first purge, but uh, we'll see. Uh, we uh, We will stay here as reports come in. The California Department of Social Services <clears throat> the uh, CDSS announcing that the, whatever it is, the CalFresh and the other one, the uh, the various EBT programs, uh, the cards are down right now for 24 hours for scheduled maintenance. And I started seeing these signs up in, uh, in stores, I guess, about last week, and I didn't really pay attention to them. Uh, but I, I saw one uh, in uh, Burbank. And uh, one in Tehachapi, and I and uh, apparently, I, I guess what happened is that the stores, the grocery stores, were told to print out this sheet or something. But it was just like a Xerox or a you know sent from a laser printer. Uh, the sheet on the way out, on the way out of the grocery store, it said that the EBT cards will be down. Now, I mean, I I can't honestly tell you that I've noticed. Uh, whether it be in Oregon or Washington or Utah or Nevada. But I, I do know that, you know, California has approximately one-third of all welfare recipients in the entire United States. And so uh, when the EBT cards go down, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, and California is also, in my experience, I, I don't know, like I say, I, I haven't paid attention. It's just that when you drive up Lancashire, or Hollywood Way, or whatever, you see those signs in fast food restaurants that say EBT welcome. And, you know, I, I guess I'm just one of those a-holes um, who pays taxes, and I'm wondering if the USDA, a lot of people don't know this, but the, Depart- the Department of Agriculture, um, uh, EBT food stamps are part of their budget, besides, you know, subsidizing farmers to overproduce uh, things that will never make it to the market. This is another thing that they do. And there's a record number of people on food stamps and EBT cards. And this is because uh, we have uh, actually raised the poverty line for a family of two or a family of three. And if someone finds that they're eligible for food stamps, I, I get it. I don't, I don't blame them. But when Calling them food stamps is a bit of a misnomer in, in this day and age anyway. And the scam that a lot of people do, if you don't know this, is that they take their EBT card and they will, uh, they will sell the benefits on the card for cash, for 50 cents on the dollar or whatever. Because for a lot of people who are alcoholics, um, they are using the food stamp card to purchase alcohol. They're just not specifically using the card to do it, but they are they are giving the card to someone who's going to use the 150 for whatever, 
And uh, so anyway, I'm, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what uh, LAPD is going to do. I know they were on alert for Mexico versus Korea earlier today, and I don't know if they're, uh, they have uh, teams out in different areas of, of L.A. where uh, the EBT crisis is happening. But anyway, just, just know that, that that may be something that involves your own personal security here, which is, of course, we're always concerned here at the dark secret place about national security, state security, personal security, personal property security, uh, et cetera. So anyway, that's your heads up. That's what happened here at 11, and that is going to uh, be over in 24 hours uh, or less. So uh, the president has announced that about 500 U.S. bodies are going to be repatriated to the United States. The U.S. Army, U.S. forces in Korea, or us fork, uh, delivered literally um, like 517 pine boxes to uh, the treaty village at Panmunjom, where the North Koreans have brought the bodies. And if you're wondering what exactly led to them suddenly discovering these bodies, uh, here's the deal. They have bodies warehoused. Uh, they have had these bodies warehoused since the mid-50s when they discovered that we would actually uh, concede uh, or give concessions in, in, in negotiations uh, for the repatriation of American uh, servicemen's remains from the Korean War. Uh, the In most cases, the North Koreans were the ones who uh, buried them uh, or executed them and put them in mass graves. If, if you're unaware of how the thing, how everything worked, uh, it, it went like this. At the end of World War II, the former Japanese-occupied uh, country that the, that the Japanese called Chosin but was actually Korea um, it, it had been occupied uh, since the uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Of course, it was occupied by Tsarist Russia, but it was a indigenous and very ethnically homogenous people called the Koreans. And so rather than putting Korea under one mandate, unifying the peninsula as one country, the UN, of course, split the baby along the 38th parallel, and the uh, United States... And UN countries, but specifically the U.S. got the mandate to administer and occupy what was called the Republic of Korea. The Soviet Union occupied the part that was suddenly called the People's Democratic Republic of Korea or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK. The uh, Soviets obviously installed a communist government. There were a couple different rivals for the throne, but the guy, the young guy who really seemed to get it more than anyone else was this youngster named Kim Il-sung, uh, who was a Red Army uh, captain. Um, and he seemed to be the guy, because of his knowledge of Russian uh, and et cetera, who would be the most pliable. Uh, he began uh, p- cruising around the country, giving lectures on self-reliance in Korean, even though he, he knew that the Soviet advisors didn't understand Korean, but he would give speeches in Korean about self-reliance that he called Juche. Uh, and things like this. He used the Soviets because he knew he had to. Uh, He wasn't a huge fan of the Chinese, but he was a huge fan of the thousands of Koreans who fought in the People's Liberation Army for Mao Zedong because they provided a ready-made North Korean army or Korean People's Army. So while North Korea immediately got this injection of several thousand, many, many thousands of uh, what were called the Inmingun, who were the Koreans who fought for Mao Zedong. So they had 15 years of combat experience. They had fought from the mid-30s 
uh, against the Japanese and against the nationalists. Then throughout World War II, the Japanese. When World War II ended, of course, the Chinese Civil War took place. The Chinese Communists won. And the, uh, the, North Korea, the Korean detachment, the Inmingun, uh, were sent to North Korea to become a, a turnkey army. So the North Koreans had this army. Kim, Jong, uh, Kim Il-sung uh, immediately began agitating w- with his Soviet masters for reunification of the peninsula. Uh, the Russians on the scene, uh, all the way up to the Kremlin, decided that the United States was barely involved in on the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. Army had several hundred advisors that were overwatching the South Korean, the Republic of Korea Army, but the the Rock Army, as it was called, was really nothing more than a glorified uh, gendarmerie, just an internal police force. And so, when the North Koreans involved with uh, invaded with Soviet blessing and uh, and leadership in June of 1950, they made pretty short work of the South Korean Army, the Rock Army, as well as the U.S. Army. That was rushed there from Japan after sitting on their asses under MacArthur's command for five years, barely combat capable. They were thrown into uh, the face of a a combat-hardened North Korean army. Uh, The result was hundreds and thousands of Americans were were executed after capture, after surrender, uh, and uh, their bodies were put in unmarked mass graves all around South and North Korea. Uh, More on this when we come back. Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits in here. Back right after this, KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is a Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. And so uh, back to our uh, uh, American bodies repatriated from uh, North Korea talk. So the, the tide of the Korean War initially was that the North Koreans, uh, with Soviet leadership, overwhelmed the South Korean forces and the meager American forces that were there, MacArthur quickly reinforced the Korean Peninsula from American forces in Japan, uh, notably the 1st Cavalry Division. Uh, in many cases, the, uh, the troops were manning uh, tanks and artillery that they had not seen for months because um, the, the MacArthur 8th Army there in Japan wasn't exactly battle-hardened or, or uh, drilled well. Most, of course, obviously the... World War II veterans, by 1950, um, a few of them made the Army and the Air Force their career, but not enough to really retain the combat experience. And so there was little combat experience amongst the men, amongst the NCOs on the ground. And so a lot of small unit uh, actions were absolutely disastrous. The North Koreans overran the U.S. Army, captured a guidon from the 1st Cavalry Division, and uh, left the Americans surrounded in a perimeter around the southern Korean town of Pusan. Uh, And it was only then that MacArthur's brilliant stroke of landing the Marines to the north turned the Korean War around. Well, in that time, so many Americans uh, surrendered to the North Koreans uh, with no prior experience to fighting communist forces. It was thought that uh, surrender was a rational choice, just like it was generally— uh, to the Germans, not so much to the Japanese, but uh, at least to the Germans. Well, not so much with the uh, North Koreans either. The North Koreans considered uh, prisoners an impediment. Their Soviet advisors, uh, their only advice was not to mark the graves. And so as American forces, as the tide turned and American forces pushed back up north to the peninsula, 
They found mass graves filled with Americans uh, whose wrists were bound behind their backs with wire and things like that, clearly executing prisoners. Uh, and uh, the, the tide turned so quickly that by November of 1950, remember the war started in June. So now we're talking about five months later, the North Koreans have been pushed back to the very edge of the border of North Korea and China. And in doing so, Pyongyang became the only communist capital that was liberated during the Cold War. Uh, however, that's when China entered the war. And so for the rest of the war, it was mainly UN, United States forces and UN forces fighting against Chinese, not North Koreans. But uh, in, in our uh, offensive back up to the north, uh, we found uh, uh, prison camps full of starving American prisoners, many of whom had been executed right before uh, we got there. Uh, and as the Chinese started uh, pushed us back in this in the third wave of the war from November of 1950 on, when the <clears throat> Chinese pushed us back uh, down back into South Korea, they also overran uh, um, UN and American units and executed prisoners. So there there is a reservoir of thousands of missing that the North Koreans can draw upon to do what they're doing today. Now there is something a bit different, and it's that. Um, the uh, Kim Jong-un and his his new government, loyal to him, are, are doing a couple things. Thing one, they're repatriating a huge number of Americans. I mean, 500 at once is more than they have. As far as I can find, that's the most they've ever done, except for the very end of the war, the armistice, the ceasefire in 1953, when thousands of North Korean bodies were repatriated to the North and thousands of American and U.N. bodies were repatriated to the South. Since then, I can't find a time when 500 uh, American bodies have been repatriated without something in return. So that's significant. Uh, the other thing is that Kim Jong-un apparently has personally changed the oath of the citizens of North Korea. Uh, the The oath is a multi-paragraph um, the, the sort of speech that you give collectively in school, uh, in a hospital, at that shift change, uh, at the at the bus company, everywhere. Everyone takes the oath and they recite it publicly uh, in a couple different contexts. And the, the oath uh, has an acknowledgement of the founding of North Korea by Kim Il-sung, the remarkable achievements and economic success of his song, uh, his son, Kim Jong-il, and then, of course, they tag on a bit at the very end about Kim Jong-un. Well, Kim Jong-un has, uh, has evidently uh, changed up the oath, and he's edited his grandpa out uh, a little bit, his dad significantly, and then he pumps up his own achievements with the uh, harnessing of nuclear uh, fission through uh, bombs, and we're now uh, indefeatable and the whole thing. So he's really sort of glorifying himself and putting – putting the spotlight on him, which I would analyze that as saying, and a lot of uh, experts uh, far more experienced than me have said, this is a guy who's about to announce to his people that there's going to be a pretty major change and he doesn't want to be challenged. So he's doing this minor thing, changing the oath. This is uh, the only analogy I can make in American society would be the Pledge of Allegiance. So can you imagine the Pledge of Allegiance being changed to and mentioning Trump? Something like that, right? So that, that's what Kim Jong-un is doing. So those are two significant events. Uh, the, the huge repatriation of American dead from the Korean War and the North Koreans changing 
the oath that the citizens take. We'll be back in a minute. The uh, American conquest of San Diego happened on this date. I'll tell you about that right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight. Uh, coming up next, the conquer uh, the the conquest of San Diego by Admiral Samuel Francis Dupont on this date in 1847. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of reading, like like a lot of people do. Uh, you know, I, I do it during the year, but during the summer, um, usually I'm reading two books at a time, and um, I'm rereading a book that I read first when I was in high school. <clears throat> That has become kind of a cult uh, pursuit book called The Devil's Guard. And the author is Elford, E-L-F-O-R-D. And the book's premise, and it's supposed to be a true book, and though there's many questions about it, is that an American zoologist, Elford, who's a real person and who really was a zoologist, met a former Nazi SS partisan uh, guerrilla hunter from World War II as he was advising a unnamed Southeast Asian army. And the guy had such a fascinating story that the author said, look, I'm not writing this book to glorify what he did, but just to sort of illustrate the mind of a unregenerate Nazi. And so uh, the, the man who's identified as Wagemuller, but it was a, a fake name, uh, supposedly sat down with this author in 1971 for 18 days and uh, dictated uh, his life story. And it begins with a lot of self-justification for fighting World War II. Of course, he fought against the Russians, not against the Americans, and he makes a huge point of, uh, of ignoring uh, everything that the Third Reich did except for 10 feet around him. And, of, of course, he was just a communist fighter. And as I reread that part, now I can kind of see through the guy, and, and it, that part sounds self-justifying and, to be honest, a bit phony. But uh, what happened in real life, and this is a matter of historic fact, is that um, there really was a unit of former SS partisan fighters who uh, surrendered to the Americans, were uh, in POW camps, and the French government after the war went to them and said— you will stand trial for war crimes or you can join the French Foreign Legion uh, because by law, French citizens can't join. You can join the Foreign Legion and go fight communists in the jungles of Indochina. So hundreds of these guys um, who, uh, you know, d didn't want to sit around and wait for a, <clears throat> you know, a, a nice heavily perfumed uh, noose, joined the Foreign Legion, were sent to Indochina. And were really, truly, honestly, brutally effective against the communist Viet Minh uh, who were infiltrating the, the French colonies of uh, Indochina, uh, Annam, Laos, and Cambodia. And uh, they employed the same tactics that they did in France and in Russia, which were brutal and merciless and ugly. Uh, they asked no quarter and they gave none. They even did combat missions into China. And then ultimately what happened was that the French communists back home found out about their backstory, complained to the newspapers. Uh, France felt uh, shame and dishonor, and they pulled these guys out of the jungle, uh, and uh, the rest is history. France lost Indochina, and the United States went there. So anyway, the book has become, like I say, a bit of a cult favorite, unfortunately, amongst a lot of uh, Nazi fans and, and uh, things like that. And upon rereading it, uh, if you read it years ago, 
Um, to be perfectly objective, the part about his combat in Indochina is really interesting. Um, and it does actually ring accurate. His self-justification leading up to that, the first 50 pages of the book, really sound like a guy in the dock for his life, on trial for his life in Nuremberg. But uh, so anyway, that's uh, that's the book, Devil's Guard by Alfred. The other book, if you are a, no uh, a fan of spy novels, whether it's uh, like William F. Buckley's Blackford Oaks no novels, which I, I read as a kid, I read all the James Bond novels. Ian Fleming was a great writer. Uh, and if you ever felt like his details were really, really good and the tradecraft of 007, which, by the way, never made it into the movies. But if you read a novel, I really highly recommend you read Casino Royale. Um, and, and you'll note that the, the tone of the novel, the 007 in the novel, is a lot different from the 007 on screen. Uh, there's a lot less wisecracking. Uh, and there was uh, there's there's a lot more of the the brutal hand to hand plus the brilliant tradecraft. Well, if you don't know this, Ian Fleming, well, really was that guy in World War II. Uh, in World War II, uh, Ian Fleming uh, began in in uh, the late 30s. He was a stockbroker. Uh, he came from a wealthy family. His grandfather in Scotland came from a, a peat moss house uh, to becoming a clerk to becoming a very wealthy banker. Uh, Ian Fleming's father died in World War One. His older brother, Peter, became the man in the house at the age of 10. And Ian was was always chasing after his older brother, Peter, all of his life. And so in World War Two, he was a man of the world, had been around the world, spoke French and German, even some Russian. He'd gone to Russia as a Reuters reporter in the early 30s. Uh, and so he was a natural right-hand man for the uh, British Director of Naval Intelligence, Admiral Godfrey, who uh, we find out in the book was the model for M. If you know anything about the novels and, and the 007 movies, you know that 007 answers to M. Uh, and M is a real position in MI6. That is, that is the name of the person who's the head of MI6. They, they don't have real names. Uh, they use that, uh, that initial. Of course, there is Q Branch, led by Q and the whole thing, so in, in the book, as, as Ian Fleming experiences combat, uh, including Dieppe in August of 1942, the absolute disastrous raid uh, into France uh, two years before D-Day, uh, as he experiences real combat and real loss, uh, he, the man has some sort of epiphany, and he becomes uh, this, this great thinker. And he, uh, he uh, forms a unit <clears throat> called the 30 Assault Unit, which is a naval commando unit uh, that either goes on their own raids or they accompany uh, other raids uh, and they go ashore and they exploit German captured equipment, uh, uh, classified documents, everything. It became an invaluable unit. They began doing missions on their own. And if you've ever wondered why so many times in 007 movies and certainly in the novels, why is 007 in a wetsuit all the time? Um, the You learn in Ian Fleming's Commandos, uh, about the Ian Fleming's experience in World War II uh, and his brilliant writing. The guy was a genius of a writer. He could dictate first draft off the top of his head. Uh, and so it became a natural that he wrote uh, his, his stories from World War II through the eyes of a MI6 secret agent named 007. Uh, and, of course, he got the name James Bond from a bird identification book. Uh, from the uh, Caribbean. But anyway, excellent book. If, if you read spy novels, 
take a break and read the real spy novel, Ian Fleming's Commandos by uh, Rankin, R-A-N-K-I-N, and I'll uh, send links out uh, to this. So that's your summer reading. Uh, yesterday was the, first, the longest day of the summer, but there's plenty of time. Uh, we'll be back uh, right after this, The Conquest of San Diego. Uh, on this date in 1847, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark, secret place. Brian sits in here uh, one last time here until midnight, until the purge is over and the California EBT cards work again in 24 hours. Well, I guess we're almost 23 hours away. Um, the tragic story of the conqueror of San Diego... Admiral Samuel Francis DuPont. Uh, you may know the name DuPont because uh, the very wealthy DuPont family, uh, who did not capitalize the D in the Du, uh, they had a gunpowder factory, which grew into the uh, the world's multinational chemical company. But there were branches of the family that were not exactly uh, tasting of the success of the DuPont family. And Samuel, uh, young Samuel DuPont's uh, branch was uh, one of them. Uh, at a very, very young age, his family used their influence with Thomas Jefferson uh, to uh, to get him uh, in uh, enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And then, uh, because they knew President Madison, at the age of 12, he was appointed as a midshipman. Uh, of course, uh, the U.S. Navy was mandated by Congress um, and uh, later on, a small army uh, consisting of the 1st and 2nd Regiments of Infantry and uh, the 1st uh, the and 2nd uh, Regiments of Cavalry uh, were, were mandated by Congress. But we didn't have a real big standing army uh, because Washington and the, the framers didn't like that. But we did have to have a standing Navy because uh, uh, naval knowledge and skill is a muscle that atrophies uh, pretty easily. You, you need to have skilled fighters and navigators, especially navigators and uh, men who know the sail and the guns and the whole thing. And so, of course, the uh, the United States, the early U.S. Navy uh, featuring the USS Constitution and the USS Congress and other, other famous ships existed. And it was, believe it or not, it was uh, competitive to get in uh, because there was a fixed number of people who could be in the Navy. You could only put so many people on, on a ship. So anyway, young Samuel Francis DuPont uh, was a midshipman at the age of 12. Uh, there was no Naval Academy at the time. And so he learned all of his mathematics and navigation uh, literally at sea. So by the time he was 18 years old, he was a master of sail, not an officer yet, but he was an absolute expert. He was a master navigator. He was then commissioned as an officer. So here was a guy um, at a time when you could literally buy a commission. You could, you could walk up to Congress and say, here's 10,000 ducats. I will go ahead and be a Commodore. Uh, sort of like the, the British uh, system. Here was a guy who enlisted and worked his way up, earned his commission, uh, and so he wasn't a huge fan of many of the officers that he was uh, under the, the command of, and he was very vocal about that. So anyway, um, he marries uh, a first cousin, but nevertheless, uh, he marries. He marries Sophie Madeleine Dupont, um, his first cousin uh, and the daughter of his uncle. Uh, his uncle uh, was the rich guy. His uncle is the guy with the gunpowder factory. So he's he's set for life, right? We all, um, his career um, elevates him to command. Uh, he's an extremely competent officer, and he's, by all accounts, a uh, wonderful leader. 
the Mexican-American War breaks out. So, uh, as it turns out, uh, he was, uh, in 1846, before the war was broken out, broke out, he was given command of a sloop, the Cyan, uh, which is French for wind or uh, whatever. And the sloop carried with it about uh, 12 guns of uh, various sizes, but in the hands of a skilled sailor, uh, a very lethal uh, vessel. He quickly showed his skill as a naval combat commander. Uh, either he took as prize or he destroyed 30 enemy ships. And by himself in the Pacific, he cleared the Gulf of California. Now, back then, in 1846, when you were a commander and you took as prize an enemy ship, you took its value. Uh, you, The general breakdown was uh, that you, uh, wh- whoever the broker was who bought the ship from you, you, the captain, you kept 50%. And your first mate, uh, he took the next biggest share, and then the other uh, shares were were uh, divvied up amongst the men, uh, and the senior enlisted, and et cetera. So uh, by himself, he he became uh, wealthy in clearing out the Gulf of California. <clears throat> so uh, meanwhile, uh, he transported uh, Major John Fremont's troops to San Diego, where they captured the city. Uh, Dupont then continued operations. Up and down the Baja coast, uh, he captured La Paz uh, and uh, destroyed enemy gunboats in the uh, in the harbor of Guayamas. He then lay, uh, led the main line of ships, and so now he's in command of a, a small fleet of ships. And in uh, November of 1847, he takes Mazatlan. So that's kind of a big deal. Uh, February of 1848, he took Cabo. He took uh, San Jose del Cabo, uh, and he managed to uh, take shore parties three miles inland, uh, and relieve a, a besieged cavalry squadron uh, despite heavy resistance by uh, Mexican forces. He was then given command of the California Naval Blockade in the last months of the war, and after taking part in further land maneuvers, including the Battle of Los Angeles, he was ordered home. Later on in the Civil War, he was uh, of even higher command. He was given a fairly impossible mission to attack Charleston, South Carolina, with ironclad ships and take the harbor. Uh, it failed. He was relieved, uh, and he was uh, exonerated And uh, later on in the war because a much larger force tried to replicate the same feat, and they had their asses handed to them. And it wasn't until uh, uh, General Sherman took Charleston with land forces that that, uh, uh, that it was shown that it wasn't DuPont's fault. He, he died in obscurity and a little bit of shame, uh, 16 years after he died, Congress took it upon themselves to uh, s- sort of uh, do CPR on his image, and they exonerated him uh, for uh, any blame and the failure to take Charleston. And in fact, they named DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., after uh, Admiral Samuel Francis DuPont. On this date in uh, 1847, uh, however, uh, he, the city of San Diego was uh, taken from Mexican forces by uh, uh, Major Fremont and uh, Admiral, uh, I'm sorry, Commodore Samuel Francis DuPont uh, at the time. So, San Diego, uh, please enjoy. That is uh, The Dark Secret Place. We'll see you back here tomorrow night for Super Hyper Local Sunday at 8 p.m. Brian Suits out, and uh, we'll see you back here on KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk.